Bob Murphy Show, episode 84. Get ready for another episode of the Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. I realize that I've been doing the podcast now for 84 episodes, and I don't think that I've ever talked about what's called the infinite banking concept or IBC, except for the interview that I did with Nelson Nash. That was back in episode 20. So again, you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 20 if you want to see my interview with Nelson. So Nelson was the founder of what's called the infinite banking concept or IBC. So I would have talked about it a little bit there, but even so, most of that episode was more of Nelson's personal story rather than delving into the mechanics of IBC. The other issue is I do a lot of work with Carlos Lara in particular. And so if you go to our website, laramurphy.com, that's the central clearinghouse for all the stuff that I do about IBC. And incidentally, that's his last name. So it's L-A-R-A hyphen murphy.com. It's not that I have a sister, Laura. It's Lara Murphy. And again, there's a hyphen in between our names there. So lara-murphy.com is where you want to go for all of the stuff that we do. And it's, you know, we set the website up so that if you're a total newcomer, you can go there and there's an FAQ and it walks you through step-by-step depending on your level of pre-existing knowledge. So that's where I would point you if you're starting from scratch and want to go. But what I'm going to do in this episode, and I promised myself I would just go 30 minutes because I, you know, I could speak for hours on this stuff. And we do if you go to one of our seminars. But let me just give a, a half hour introduction just for those of you who are willing to give it a quick little listen, just at least know what's going on. Because I imagine what happens is, and I, <laughs> I said I was at a conference with somebody and uh, another economist, and we're sitting down to the, I think it was a lunch when the, you know, they're going to have the lunchtime speaker go up there. And he said something like, Bob, are you still doing that magic insurance stuff? <laughs> and, and so I basically said, yes, yes, I am doing the magic insurance stuff. So what is this magic insurance stuff that perhaps some of you vaguely know about, but you never really took the time to get into it? It was this concept called the infinite banking concept that this guy Nelson Nash discovered. Again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 20. You want to hear his story. It's a fascinating one. He was in the life insurance industry he got introduced literally to Leonard Reed and, and had Leonard Reed come down and give seminars at groups that Nelson would assemble for him in Birmingham, Alabama. And Leonard Reed was Nelson's personal tutor, you know, telling him, okay, now read this, now read this, now read this. As Nelson got further into Austrian economics and libertarian political philosophy. So Nelson, like I say, was an insurance salesman and he had an epiphany, as Nelson describes it. He's a very strong Christian and thinks that God just gave it to him so he doesn't take credit really for it, that um, there's a way you can use old school, plain vanilla, dividend-paying whole life insurance policies to, in a sense, become your own banker. 
And that's the name of the book that Nelson wrote called Become Your Own Banker, or people just say BYOB. And that has sold many thousands of copies, many, many thousands of copies. It's been translated in a bunch of languages and so on. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's sold a lot. And in this book, Nelson explains what IBC is, the infinite banking concept. And so IBC is the way you become your own banker using a whole life insurance policy as the platform, right? So it's a little confusing at first to people because here's the claim, hey, we're going to show you how to become your own banker. And then it turns into a discussion about life insurance. It's like, wait, what? I thought you were talking about banking. What's the... So again, the what's going on is you're going to use a dividend-paying whole life insurance policy is the platform upon which you implement the process of IBC. All right, now let me be clear in the beginning here. When we say become your own banker, you're not setting up an actual bank in a legal sense or a regulatory sense, right? It just means a vehicle or a, a just a cash management system. You could call it that, right? So Nelson, a lot of times when he would, so he would do a presentation and at one point he, um, went through just the letters IBC for infinite banking concept and talked about why did he call it that? And so the I for infinite, he would say, well, because there's so much you can do with this thing. It's limitless. It's just your imagination is the only constraint and B for bank or banking. And so why did he pick that? And so here he was saying, just think about how we use the word bank elsewhere in life. Like what's a food bank? Oh, it's this sort of warehouse where soup cans and, paper towels and whatever come and go. And it's a temporary reservoir where it builds up before it's deployed to where it's needed in the community. All right. Well, what do we mean by a snow bank? Oh, that's the part on the side of the road. And after the plow comes through, that's where the snow is deposited. Right. So we use this word bank pretty loosely. It doesn't necessarily mean a chartered financial institution where demand deposits are put. Right. And so that's the sense in which Nelson is saying, this is a a vehicle through which you can manage the dollars as they flow through your possession. And he thinks it's a very powerful way of freeing yourself from reliance upon outside financiers, put it that way. All right. Or as Nelson might put it, it's a way to get the bankers out of your life. And Nelson would always stress that it was a very peaceful, stress-free way of living once you were not dependent upon outside entities. And in case you're not seeing where he's coming from, he has a section in his book where he diagnoses the problem facing the typical American. And by the way, this also is very applicable for the Canadian audience. The reason IBC tends to just be aimed at an American and Canadian public is that the specific financial product that you want to use to implement IBC, namely a dividend-paying whole life insurance policy, as of the last time we checked, it was really only available in the United States and Canada. I mean, if you were elsewhere, but you were, you know, a part-time resident in one of those countries, maybe a life insurance company would issue it to you on those grounds. But there were some rumblings about possibly the product being introduced in South America and stuff like that as of a few years ago. So I'm not claiming as of right this moment, it's only in the Canada and the U.S., but historically that's been the case and that's why we've uh, focused our attention on those two areas. But in any event, Nelson, as I say, had a section in his book called The Problem Facing the Typical American Household. And he was just showing how the way you're taught to do things is that you get your paycheck. Of course, the government takes its cut. And then you take out 
a big chunk and put it into your so-called retirement fund, which is a tax-qualified plan, like a 401k or a 403b, typically, if you're a salaried employee, depending on whether you're in the educational sector or conventional private sector. And then what do you do with a bunch of the rest of your remainder of your paycheck is you're probably making, quote, payments on your house or your car or your boat. Because what happened is, oh, when you went to buy a house, you didn't have the cash for it. Instead, you got a mortgage probably. And when you went to buy a new car, what did you do? You probably didn't, quote, pay cash for it. You probably borrowed money from a conventional auto finance operation. Same thing with a boat. Or even if you you know, had a big ticket expense like your daughter's getting married, you probably didn't have that money sitting in your checking account. And so you may have even taken out a loan to do that or put it on your credit cards or something. And, you know, oh, I'll pay it off over the next six months, whatever. So the point being, Nelson's saying the typical American, when they look at what their budget is and they say, oh, okay, here's how much comes in. And then you start subtracting stuff away. A lot of the big ticket items are actually payments that you're making to outside lenders. And depending on the specifics, a lot of that is probably interest, right? Especially for if you got like a 30-year mortgage, which is now pretty standard, even though that would have been inconceivable to people living in the early 1900s. Unless, you know, you can, you know, you would have had a huge down payment on your house back then and, you know, maybe you would have had a 10-year mortgage or something. <laughs> the idea that you would be getting, I mean, I've heard of stuff now where there's like interest-only loans for you to get into a new car, stuff like that. I mean, it's just crazy stuff that, we, you know, would have seemed ludicrous to people two generations ago. All right, so Nelson's, you know, he runs through the calculations. I haven't updated these numbers, but in his book, he ballparks it that, you know, something like a third of your income is going to finance charges, you know, interest expense, making some assumptions, all right? Like, for example, unless, if you move out of your house within the first seven years or something like that, well, then that's going to kill you in terms of, you know, the proportion of your paycheck that's actually just going to paying interest. Now, incidentally, I, as an outside economist at the moment, you got to be careful with that kind of language, all right? So it, it doesn't mean that, oh, buying something on credit is always wrong or, you know, is irrational, something like that. And, you know, there, there, is, a, there is such a thing as the time value of money, all right? So I'm not here condemning mortgages per se, but I'm saying once you understand the basic point Nelson's making, it's, it's pretty powerful, and, you know, so some people with IBC, the problem is, I think sometimes people think there's something deeper going on. And so they're like, you know, wait a minute, you're basically just saying if you first save up before you buy expensive things rather than borrowing it to, you know, to buy on credit, that in the long run, you're going to be wealthier. Well, no kidding. I know saving more makes me wealthier down the road. And it's like, okay, but then you don't actually do that in your life. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so it's um you know it's that kind of thing where where Nelson's not claiming this is some amazing thing that nobody you know could ever possibly understand. He's saying it's quite straightforward, but nonetheless, people don't do it because they've been taught incidentally that oh, the smart thing to do is to put your money in these tax qualified plans. So the connection there, and Nelson has a whole thing in his book about you know there's only one pool of savings just like there's only, you know, all the water in a sense is all interconnected on planet Earth. He's got a nice analogy there. But his point is, when you step back and look at what's happening, that you're taking 
some of the money from your paycheck and putting it in, you know, giving it to these outsiders and they're going to control your money and probably you're putting it in a form of prison where once you give it to them, you can't touch your money without penalty until you're in your 60s. So, you, you know, you, you give them your money, so up oh, now you can access it. And then when you go to, you know, borrow money from somebody to buy your car, ultimately that might, that money is coming from the place where you put it for your 401k, right? And so it's, it's this weird thing where you hand your money over to somebody else, then how do they invest it? Well, partly they might allocate some of it to these uh, lenders and then they charge you interest on, you know, in a sense lending you your money back, okay? So here, that's not necessarily the, the language Nelson uses. I'm just trying to get you to see the big picture and how he's looking at it. And so the point is, you know, there's got to be a better way to do it. So part of what's going on is the reason you think, oh, gee, I don't have the cash flow. I can't afford to just pay cash for my car is because you feel broke since after the government takes its cut and then, you know, you're paying for health care and stuff like that, or health insurance, a lot of what's left is now going into these financial vehicles that all the gurus tell you to put your money in. Like, oh, it's a no-brainer. And then you can't touch your money when you need it. All right, so it's a weird kind of no-brainer to put your money in this vehicle, especially if you're young, where, oh yeah, put it here. And then when you're in your 60s, then you can get your money. All right, so that's partly why you feel so broke. I mean, obviously the taxes are taxes. It'd be better if they were zero. But the point is, even given your after-tax income, you know, wages, what I have you, that part of the reason you feel like, oh, I have to borrow money in order to get a decent car is because the way you're, quote, saving for my retirement is through this method where you can't touch those funds, or at least you can't touch them without getting penalized, right? So Nelson's saying, isn't there a better way? And he thinks he's found a better way. So specifically, what you do is... In Nelson's vision, you don't play games with those tax-qualified plans. As Nelson would often say, you know, commenting on the observation that, oh, wow, I mean, you look at all the tax benefits from using these special vehicles. And Nelson would say, uh, I'm not going to do his charming Southern accent right now because I haven't worked on it in a while. But he would say, when government comes along and offers the solution, i.e. tax-qualified plans, to the very problem they created, i.e. onerous taxation, don't you feel a little bit suspicious that you're being manipulated, all right? So what he meant by that is to say, the only reason everybody's like, oh my gosh, of course you got to put your money in the tax-qualified plans, otherwise, you know, that's a, that's a no-brainer, is that other types of ways you're going to save for the future, the government's going to kill you with this just standard income tax. All right, so it's it's not that doing those other vehicles is dumb per se. It's that the government kills you on them and then the government, uh, out of the goodness of their heart, because, oh, they really care about fostering a healthy retirement for the, you know, the average American, will say, oh, if you put it in one of these special vehicles that we approve of, then we're not going to tax it so much. Don't get me wrong. They're still going to tax you when you take it out, but it's not as bad as if you don't go into one of their vehicles. That's the idea. All right. so. Anyway, Nelson's, so this is always, his view is don't, don't play those games at all. But in any event, whether you go that full route or just start funding one of these alternate vehicles, the, the idea is you want to build up this alternate, what's called bank in quotation marks, this alternate warehouse of wealth. That's another one of Nelson's books, Warehouse of Wealth. 
And what it is, it's a dividend paying whole life policy. And so you're, you take it, it's a large, you know, death benefit. And when you fund this thing, it has relatively high premiums compared to a comparable term life insurance policy of the same death benefit. The premium you pay on a whole life policy is higher. And with each payment you make, and as time passes, even if you're past the point at which you have to make payments, the so-called cash surrender value of the whole life policy increases. All right, so let me pause for a moment here and just briefly explain what a whole life policy is. I've been throwing that term around and maybe you don't know. And if you don't know, don't worry about it. I didn't know what it was either. I was introduced to IBC by Carlos Lara. He gave me Nelson's book, you know, and had a PhD in economics from NYU. I thought I was a hotshot and uh, I didn't really know what whole life policy was. I thought life insurance was just the term insurance. You know, just, I thought it was just like, you know, there's fire insurance, car insurance, there's life insurance. And I thought it was the same thing. So term insurance is like car insurance or fire insurance, right? You just give a certain amount of money to the life insurance company. If you die during a certain period, then they give your named beneficiary whatever the contractual death benefit was. Perfectly straightforward, voluntary market exchange, a win-win. It's great. But a whole life policy, as the name suggests, it's in force for your whole life. In contrast, a term policy is only in force for a certain term. Right? So if you're 30 years old and you take out a 10-year term policy, you still have to make premium payments to keep the thing in force. But the point is, even if you've made all your payments after 10 years, when you turn 40, that contract ends. Right? And if you still want to have life insurance coverage in force, you have to go reapply. You're, of course, going to have to pay higher premiums no matter what because you're older, but you may have developed some medical condition in the interim. So they might even tell you at that point, sorry, you're uninsurable. Or they might quote you a premium that's so high you say, I'm not going to pay that if your medical condition has worsened since you were 30. In contrast, if you're 30 years old and take out a whole life policy, then the way that thing works you have the option to renew it indefinitely. You can keep that thing in force until you die. Or when you turn 121, that's the the current ceiling on these things, at least for ones in the United States, then the thing just completes or endows. And they, they just pay you the, quote, death benefit at that point, even though you're still alive because actuarially they need to have a, a finite endpoint for these things in order for the math to work and to figure out how much to charge. All right, so that's the idea. So it's a whole life policy. If you think about it, if you're 30 years old, it's like it's a 91-year term policy, if that's the way you want to think of it, right? Which is going to be basically the same thing because just about everyone's going to be dead by the time they turn 121. Okay, so that's why, incidentally, the premium you pay on a whole life policy is more than what you'd pay for a comparable term policy with the same death benefit because there's that built-in renewal option, right? Just like if you're 30 and took out a five-year term policy, you know, like a million-dollar death benefit and you got the premium quote and then you said, okay, well, what if instead I got a 20-year term policy, same million-dollar death benefit, what would the premium be there? Well, the quote's going to be higher, right? I mean, just think that through. That's pretty obvious because you have a much greater chance even annually of dying when you're older than when you're younger. So if the life insurance company is going to charge you, I should have mentioned when we say the premium, we mean like 
a monthly or an annual premium that stays the same. So if they got to come up with a dollar figure to charge you per month to keep that term policy in force, it makes a big difference whether it's a five-year term policy versus a 20-year term policy, obviously. And they're going to have to charge you a lot more each month if it's a 20-year term policy because they know if this guy elects to keep this thing in force by making the premium payments dutifully, eventually, you know, the chance of him dying is going to be a lot higher than it is right now when he's taking the policy out. So we need to take that into account when we're setting the one size, you know, premium, the, the fixed premium that's going to be the same through the life of this particular policy. So likewise, if you're 30 years old and taking out a whole life policy, when they're going to write the contract for you and give you an offer, they know they have to charge enough so that they don't lose money on you, you know, statistically, actuarially speaking, because they realize this guy might just keep paying us every month or every year, whatever the, you know, whatever he likes to do as far as the timing in order to keep this thing in force. And since he's eventually going to die and get the million dollars or whatever it is, then they have to charge accordingly. Another way of seeing it is most term policies expire without having paid out. Okay. So the cash surrender value then is something associated with a whole life policy. And the idea is, as that policy matures over time, it's, as it were, a ticking time bomb on the liability side for the life insurance company. Every time you keep making more payments and as time passes, it's more and more likely that that existing in-force policy is going to mean the life insurance company has to pay your beneficiary whatever the death benefit was. And so they would be willing to pay you to walk away from that, to let the policy collapse or to surrender the policy is the actual term. And so that's what the cash surrender value is, right? So over time, again, the life insurance company would be willing to pay you a, a flat fee, a lump sum to just drop the policy so they're no longer on the hook. So at any given time, the cash surrender value of an in-force life insurance policy is lower than the face death benefit, right? Because the reason they're going to pay you the cash value is to get you to surrender the policy so that they don't have to worry anymore about, oh, gee, if this guy dies, then we're on the hook for the whole death benefit. So the cash value wouldn't be the whole death benefit. It would just be some you know fraction of it. But over time, as you age, the cash surrender value rises to approach the death benefit. And then if you actually live to be 121 years old for policies in the U.S., the cash value would rise to and then finally equal the death benefit and that's what you would get paid if you happen to make it to your 121st birthday as the policy completed. Okay, so that's the actuarial underlying logistics of it. One last curveball for how these things work. You have the contractually guaranteed option of taking out a policy loan with the cash surrender value serving as the collateral. Okay, so again, if you happen to need money, the life insurance company says, will make a loan to you. So it's, to be clear, you're not taking the money out of the policy. Your policy is still chugging along on its own. But then on the side, as it were, the life insurance company is giving you a loan. And, and so, you're, you know, they're charging you an interest rate. You're paying the life insurance company interest. It's not that you're paying yourself. And there's some misleading commentary floating around. But strictly speaking, you are paying interest to the life insurance company, you know, on that policy loan. but they're willing to give you very generous terms. The interest rate 
is pretty modest in general. It's a little bit screwy now with the zero interest rate environment, but in general, it's a modest interest rate. And what's incredible is that they don't insist on any terms of repayment. It's not that they say, okay, you got to make this, you know, pay this much per month on this, on this loan. Um, and they also don't run a credit check. They don't ask you what you're going to use the money for. They don't care. And the reason for such, quote, generosity in the terms is that the life insurance company itself is guaranteeing the collateral. Because again, when the life insurance company gives you a policy loan, the cash surrender value of your in-force whole life policy is what's serving as the collateral. So the life insurance company knows they're getting paid back. The only uncertainty on their part is when, right? Because you might just pay them back by writing a check and, you know, paying back the principal plus the accrued interest next Thursday, you know, you might. But even if you don't pay them back, even if you don't even make one single penny payment on that, you just let the whole thing ride, growing at interest, according to whatever the contractually specified policy loan interest rate is. Even so, they know they're getting paid back because at some point you're either going to surrender the policy or you're going to die or you're going to reach age 121. The policy is going to mature. One of those three things is going to happen and in any of those outcomes, the life insurance company is going to go and say, okay, right now we owe you either the cash surrender value or the death benefit or the quote death benefit, even though you're still alive, but you reached age 121. So we owe you a bunch of money, but oh, wait a minute, we're going to check. Do you have an outstanding policy loan? And if you do, then we're going to do a subtraction problem and give you just the net. Okay. So if you had, you know, you, let's say you originally took out a policy loan of $30,000 to pay for your daughter's wedding and it's rolling over at 5% and you didn't make a single payment on it and then it grows to be $40,000 total and then you get hit by a bus and let's say the death benefit was $100,000. So if you hadn't taken out that policy loan, they would give your widow, let's say, if, that, if she was the named beneficiary, a check for $100,000. But oops, because you had that $40,000 outstanding policy loan balance, they first pay themselves back as it were and then just send your widow the $60,000, okay? So that's the way it works. So that's what Nelson realized is an incredibly convenient way to, quote, become your own banker, is just to use that system. So he was saying any spare cash you have, you funnel into one or more of these whole life policies, and they need to be designed a certain way. I'm not going to get into that in this particular episode for, you know, for optimal results. And you, you know, accumulate dollar-denominated wealth in that type of vehicle. And then whenever you want to buy something, you take out a policy loan. And that's how you get the cash. So you want to buy a new car? Well, if, if you've built up significant cash surrender value in, in one or more of these policies, you just take out a policy loan and you, quote, pay cash for the car. And then instead of making a car payment to an outside financier, an outside lender, you make a, quote, car payment by knocking down the policy loan. So you're writing checks to the life insurance company to pay down the loan. So you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, there's lots of differences. Again, one thing is nobody's running a credit check on you. And also here, the collateral in that operation is not the car. It's your cash surrender value. So if you lose your job next year, you don't have to worry about, oh no, if I fall behind on my car payment, someone's going to show up and take my car. No, the car has been paid for. You paid cash for it when you bought it. And as we've seen, if you stop paying on the outstanding policy loan to the insurance company, they don't care. 
I mean, they're going to let it roll over at interest. It's not like you can just borrow the money and forget about it and there's no consequences. But the point is, it takes the stress off. There's not someone looking over your shoulder, breathing down your neck, saying, you better make that payment every month or stuff you use is going to disappear. That's not what's going to happen. It gives you much more flexibility to get back on track financially. All right, so that's that's the idea. And I will stop here because, again, I could speak for hours, and I do in our seminars on this stuff, but I just want to give a taste of what this is. So if you want to learn more, again, you can go to laramurphy.com. I have a podcast that I do with Carlos Lara on this stuff. But if you're willing to, you know, if I've intrigued you enough and you're like, okay, I want to give it a little bit more, I strongly recommend that you get our book, The Case for IBC. We wrote this with Nelson before he passed, and uh, Carlos and I did. And David Stearns also had a lot to do with it. So it's called The Case for IBC. And to see it, just go to thecaseforibc.com. Um, if you order it by December 18th, I think you can get it before Christmas. All right, that the, um, they process the, the orders very quickly to get them in the mail. And uh, you know, I can't guarantee what the post office is going to do a week before Christmas, but I think... If you did get the order in by December 18th, you would have it in your hands or give it to somebody you care for uh, as a Christmas present. So again, that's the case for IBC.com. The last thing I will mention, just so you understand what's going on, is Carlos and I went on the speaking circuit. We realized that we were telling the public the benefits of IBC and how you want to get one or more of these policies for use in your own life, particularly if you're a small business owner, these things are great cash management vehicles, but we weren't selling life insurance to the public, right? That's not what we were doing. So we were just telling people about it and then they would have to go find a financial professional. And so the problem is, well, what if the financial professional doesn't know how IBC works, right? So the, with these things, it's not enough just to get a whole life policy to really take advantage of it. There's a certain way you set it up. And again, here... I'm not going to get into that. It would take another episode. So you want to have a life insurance professional who has been trained in the ways of IBC in order to set these things up properly. And so I recommend if you want to do that, you go to one of the graduates of our program. So Carlos Nelson and David Stearns, who's also involved with all this, we all designed a training program for financial professionals for IBC. So what you want to do is go to a graduate of our training program if you want to talk to somebody about specifics and say, okay, yeah, here's, here's what my numbers look like. Can you show me something? Well, you know, what would this look like for me? That kind of stuff. So for that, you want to go to infinitebanking.org slash finder to see a list of our graduates and it's broken down geographically. So if you want to actually go sit down with the person, you can see ones that live near you. Okay, so this has been episode 84, bobmurphyshow.com slash 84. Of course, I'll have links here to all the things I mentioned. But again, the book is the case for ibc.com and the financial professionals are available at infinitebanking.org slash finder. I hope some of you have been intrigued and I've enticed you to do further research on the infinite banking concept, the extraordinary process discovered by R. Nelson Nash. With that, I'll end and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. 
For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.